So it would be a great pleasure to introduce Mo as the old cliche goes. He needs no introduction, but I sort of do it. Um, Ian, Professor Ian Gordon, um, who's a professor in the geography uh, and environment department, and he's with us today to talk about uh, so displacement, identification, tracing, spatial impacts, migration, inflow to London. I suppose it's worth saying that this is the uh, part of a very long-term, or relatively long-term piece of work in, or interest you've had in terms of yes. flows, migration flows and none. Right. Everything I do is part of a long-term piece of work. I think this is one of, I took out of the oven to see whether it's done or not. And I hope it's not too indigestible, but it's certainly not there yet. Um, and it's an exercise in number crunching, I warn you, um, very largely. Some of you I know were here last week when Susie Hall was being uh, very uh, stimulating and graphic and provided a very rich qualitative picture at street level uh, of migrant diversity in one bit of London, right? Uh, I want to go to the opposite extreme this week, uh, boring probably, uh, but also to stand right back to talk about very aggregated kind of groups, not to play a, about diversity at all, um, and to look across the whole of the greater southeast in search of patterns. Uh, and so to trying to understand something broad about the ways in which processes of housing migrants or fitting migrants into this regional economy work um, and hopefully suggest for discussion um, some of the political policy issues that might relate to that. I should say I've spent a lot of time going around uh, saying this population growth in London, you know, it's a statistical phenomenon. It's just a question of how many people you pack inside the borders. Uh, you pack them a lot more, in a lot more easily if you bring in a lot of poor migrants from parts of the world. And Susie did provide a nice illustration last week of, I don't know, 16 in a room upstairs in Peckham Rye, um, which provides one piece of evidence in support of the, the story. Um, this is an attempt to come to grips with it numerically, and surprise, surprise, it doesn't actually bear out my extreme view about this, but there's a lot of that kind going on, uh, and I think there's import important issues to grasp about this. And there's a real problem uh, in terms of how it is that we as planners or people who talk to planners actually come to understand the way in which any metropolitan economy works, uh, including this one, and metropolitan system works, uh, and what happens when you inject into it a particular element, in this case, a larger volume of international migrants. Um, so it, it reflects, say, then my prejudice, my thought, that the problem about metropolitan regions is the richness of their interconnections, which is what makes them so dynamic and productive and so on, uh, and the problems of being able to trace through any set of effects through a whole series of different chains of impacts, some of which are precisely displacements of opportunities from one person to another and another and another down the line, intersecting with another chain and another chain and so on, uh, in ways that we simply can't follow them through. So no series of street studies, even if they tell us how they interact with the other streets, is going to allow us to work through the implications of the sorts of processes which Susie's talking about at the micro level, and see quite how they affect people in that street or anywhere else. 
Um, so I think we have to stand back and try and use some combination of, in my case, rather soft kinds of theory, ideas, uh, and numbers, in order to try and chart reasonably simple uh, stories about what's going on and how one might be able to intervene on that, what makes a difference, what might not make a difference. Today I'm going to say nothing about what might make a difference, but try and say something about the, the processes and the complexity of the processes that we have to engage with. And some of the very simple things um, that we used to read in urban economics, urban geography textbooks decades ago, and how they still play themselves out in, in this region. Okay, um, so it's about displacements in the sense of these chains of opportunities and how they pass from one person to, to another. Um, it's also about densification, uh, as I'm saying, uh, the other side of displacement. Indeed, by the, by the end, I want to say, well, there's three ways in which we can accommodate migrants, um, think about accommodating migrants in place. One is by providing extra dwellings, or in my case, extra rooms I'm going to talk about rather than dwellings to accommodate them. Second thing we can do uh, is to pack more people into those rooms so you can increase the density of occupation. And the third thing you can do is displace the demand somewhere else. Right? And what I'm interested in, in general, and for particular broad subgroups of the migrant population in the city, is to understand the split between those three, uh, how it might change over time, and then maybe how it relates to policies and so on, but I'm not going to talk about those at this stage. Okay, um, so this is a very different way of doing research and talking about the city from Susie's. Uh, you can't see this. Um, the image which came to me this week was looking at uh, Sentinel, the, the British spy plane flying over southern England with a panoptic view of where the floods were occurring. Uh, and there's a nice image of people processing the data there, which looks rather like my office, I think. Um, but this is a different, different view on the city. Um, and there's clearly a certain power associated with that. They're not seeing anything out of the window at all. I'm not seeing anything out of the window at all. Okay. Um, displacement effects of migration. Uh, the word displacement is ambiguous, I think. Um, so a lot of the time, displacement implies the use of force, people being evicted from housing or pushed out, racknerism, as some of us remember it in Notting Hill in the 50s, maybe. Um, I'm not interested in specifically talking about force or non-force at the moment. I'm just concentrating on situations in which the arrival of or the growth of one group, of, group in, a local, in a local population is associated with the departure or the shrinkage of another group, right? Whether this happens through choice, because it's in the economic interest of everybody concerned, whether it's landlords cajoling you out or whether it's forced eviction, is not my immediate concern. Obviously, it's very great importance on the ground, but this is just about the fact of displacement and how important that is or isn't. It's a very old story, I think, in, in urban studies. Um, Chicago School of Urban Sociology, in my partial memory, was very largely about the idea of invasion and succession as the way in which cities evolve, evolved. They're changing social characters and so on, with one group arriving, occupying space, displacing another, and the repercussions of that for communities and so on. Um, so it's a very old theme. 
not been central in a lot of uh, urban writing, I think, in recent decades, but it's certainly come back since the late 1990s as a number of people have rediscovered something like this going on in cities around the world. Uh, and I don't have a full set of references here, um, but there are quite a few that have appeared in the last five years in particular. But going back to the late 1990s, um, there is evidence of some kind of serious displacement occurring associated with international migration to metropolitan regions. Displacement in the sense that regions which were attracting large and increasing inflows from overseas, net inflows from overseas, were experiencing large and increasing net outflows to other parts of the country. It's a symptom of displacement in that sense. Um, and there are two sorts of evidence which I came across back at that time. One was the um, the demographer Bill Frey in the United States presenting some maps across US metropolitan areas and showing, I'm not sure whether he intended to show it at that point, but he wrote about it subsequently, uh, exactly this point, that there were these metropolitan areas with large growth of immigration, and there were these metropolitan areas, the same ones, which had a large growth of domestic out-migration. Um, that's one sort of evidence. The other sort of evidence which struck me and we started using here a long time back, I think in the late 1990s, was simply graphs of the trends in net international migration into London, net domestic uh, migration from London, positive international, negative domestic, and something which looks like a mirror image, some suggestion that there ought to be a causal connection between these two things, or maybe some common influence pushing in opposite directions, but I think some connection. So it looks like the consequences of some sort of displacement occurring. Uh, and indeed, when we come to look at it a bit more closely and discover that there's a bit of time lag in the relationship between the two, uh, the logic is exactly that it runs from the international to the domestic, and that it is something which suggests there might be displacement going on. Um, Okay, how do we explain this? Well, maybe it, it reflects competition for limited opportunities, and if that's the case, these might be most obviously opportunities in the labour market on the one hand, they're pinching our jobs, uh, or in the housing market on the other hand, they're pinching our houses. But there's some limited resource, some limited set of opportunities, and if there's an expansion in demand, then unless there's an elastic supply, somebody's going to have to leave the market, or somebody's going to have to be much more densely so there's that quantitative dimension to it, and there could be a qualitative dimension to it as well. So the, the natives, the in-house group, uh, might well perceive that the incomers had a negative effect upon aspects of the environment and social life and so on that they valued. Uh, and we might get white flight uh, as one of the, the forms of response to that, which is a response to a qualitative change rather than simply losing out on opportunities. Now, I'm, I'm saying that because I think those are the logical sorts of possibility. Um, I think it's a fact that almost all the literature has focused on a limited number of those possibilities, and broadly speaking, economists and people like economists have talked almost entirely about the labour market and assumed that this must be a labour market phenomenon and it must be migrants taking the jobs and displacing workers somewhere else, or not. Uh, if displacement exists, that's what it would be about. And sociologists or people like sociologists have tended to assume that it must be white flight. Um, so it's going to be a normative issue about appreciation. 
Uh, I don't think we should take either of those things for granted. And I want to, to start off from a presumption that seems to me the more obvious thing in relation to this city, at least, that it's about the housing market and it's about competition for housing opportunities and displacement in there. I'm not going to test this, but I'm going to present you with a lot of pieces of evidence which I think are only really consistent with that sort of view about it. Right, so what I want to do with the remaining this time um, is go through three things to say something a bit conceptual but also drawing on past research about what we might reasonably expect or the assumptions, the prejudices which inform my interpretation of what's going on and the analyses that draw it on. Um, and then to look at two pieces of, two sets of evidence, one about how things have evolved over time, a version of looking at that graph. Uh, and the relationship between domestic and international migration in London, but also looking across other parts of the rest of the greater southeast. Um, so about time series and things that might explain the, the patterns there. And then third part, uh, looking cross-sectionally at much more detailed evidence from the last two censuses about spatial patterns of change, about what sorts of changes there have been in dwellings, their occupancy, the population mix, and so on, across small areas in this wide region, the greater southeast, um, and use them between those to investigate the three possibilities, that what we're observing is displacement, that what we're observing is an elastic supply or some supply response, increased dwellings to accommodate these extra people, uh, or that what we're observing is densification, or rather what the percentage split is between these three, and who is affected in what kinds of ways. Bearing in mind that what I mean by who is going to turn out to be some very big groups. I'm not going to talk about Turks and Jamaicans and any, any specific group of that kind, because we can't use that kind of information in relation to strategic analysis in the city and thinking about policy. Okay, um, what we should expect, uh, my prejudice is my views come from three places, really, one of which is classic urban land use theory, Alan Evans, though he may not recognize this, uh, and the, the sociological social ecologists of the Chicago School who have rather similar views in a different language. Um, and then two sets of empirical inputs, uh, lessons from um, a misspent middle age uh, and before that, um, looking at demographic changes around the southeast and all sorts of population movements in this region, including some rather dated stuff, which I think is to write. So what the lessons are of trying to make sense of household movement in this region in general. Um, and then lessons from the work that LSE London Group with Christine Whitehead, Tony Travers, Kat Scanlon, some have been doing intermittently over the last half dozen years on the impacts of migration of different kinds on this city in relation to its economy. Right. Um, the pain of irritating some people and boring others, uh, to what I think are the significant things about classic old urban theory, uh, bearing in mind that somebody here might have been, as with me at a, an urban geography seminar two weeks ago when Tom Slater said there was this set of theories which were around the 1950s and they're only taught in school these days. Um, I think they're probably taught in this department, but whether they're all taught to rock students, I'm not sure. Right, classic old urban theory says that if we have a city where there are free property markets or something like that, competitive property markets, 
the patterns of land use and the densities with which land is used in different parts of the city and the rents that are charged to them are shaped by processes of competition between different users and potential users. Okay? Um, and specifically, nice simplification that from Alonso, uh, that these users give different priorities to some characteristics of the locations, right? the uses. They give different priorities to being accessible, especially as your middle and especially as your job, but accessibility, let's think about it, on the one hand, and to having space around them on the other. Okay? And on the whole, you can't have as much as you want to both of these things. Uh, and also possibly, probably, they give some weight to the kinds of neighbour they have and whether these are desirable or like them or whatever. But the basic things one think about is accessibility versus space. And I think this, this still, as a trade-off, helps us to understand what's been going on in terms of the shifting geography of this region over the last decade and before. Now, in cities with a dominant centre, in cities where there's one centre, or at least it's a dominant one, as in this city, uh, this produces historically a basic kind of ring pattern. You can draw rings around the centre, and you can say, well, they're characterised in this way by the sorts of people or activities that occupy them, and this is the economic sense that it makes in terms of that competition. But it's a ring pattern. Uh, and then dotted around this, we may have some specialised clusters. So we may have Jamaicans here and an IT cluster there, and specific things of that kind. But basically, rings. Um, cities expand spatially, they get bigger, over space, two ways by attracting more people and by through the rising incomes of the people who live there. Right? So two things may cause the city to expand, but they have different consequences. If you attract more people, densities go up, as well as occupying more space. If incomes go up and people demand more space, as a normal response to that, the densities go down. Right? A crude caricature, Alan Evans will tell me, but still, it, I think it's an important thing to grasp that there are these two different sorts of consequences. And they have a bearing upon whether this city de-densifies at times or, or increasingly densifies at others and where migrants fit into this. Um, okay. Green belts, we have green belts in this real world. Uh, they interrupt this, they stop the thing going on forever, temporarily. Densities increase inside the green belt for a bit, and then we get to an overspill and the thing carries on almost as though nothing had happened, except there's this gap in between. Right. Um, okay, the other thing which I think is implicit in this um, but really important this idea, and will turn out to be empirically true as well, is that relocations which follow as a consequence of this. So, as, sorry, as the city gets bigger, the rings expand, they move out. So the inner ring occupies a larger space, it takes over territory occupied by different sort of people, we have displacement. Right, so displacement is an inherent attribute of growth in this kind of city, always going to be that way. Um, but what happens is mostly very short distance moves. Right? And so the logic underlying this is not one where people have to undergo dramatic shifts in order to bring about a great growth and restructuring of the city, but where it occurs through an accretion of mostly very localized moves by people optimizing their, their position. Right, what we know from household movement studies uh, in this region is that, I think, I would claim uh, that people tend to move for a whole lot of reasons. And when you ask them for the single one, you're often only getting a fraction of the story. Um, 
And white flight does figure at some point within that complex of reasons. Might come back to this in discussion. I don't think it's ever primary here, but it's, but it's certainly we had 30 years ago fairly clear evidence of white flight being one of the factors which influenced who moved, uh, if not the quantities of people who were moving. There's lots of reasons, but a few basic combinations of one shape the overall pattern of change. First, there's a set of reasons which are associated with a new job or retirement, getting away from a job altogether. Uh, so a shift in workplace. Secondly, there's a set of reasons concerned with simply wanting a larger property, more space, uh, probably to, to fit a shift in your lifestyle, but maybe because you've got more income, but simply a larger property somewhere, don't care where, um, preferably very nearby, or you want a better dwelling and a better area. Right? Uh, and those associated with long distance, short distance, and middle distance kind of moves, roughly speaking. And an awful lot of what goes on in the city is just about people looking for larger houses, sometimes smaller houses, but different houses in that sense. Um, London's population loss between 1939 and 1987 was driven by de-densification. Right? So it was not about economic failure, I would argue. It was about a, a basically successful city populated with people with rising incomes who wanted more space and who couldn't get it inside the Greenland. Right? You couldn't accommodate all the people having more space inside this thing. So the population inside the Greenbelt, what was called London, reduced over the course of time. Um, but one of the driving forces was inner area residents seeking separate and larger houses and not caring where they were, preferably too close, as close as possible, but not everybody could stay in the same place. Um, within a metropolitan region, looking a bit wider than this, looking out to Gatwick to the south, Reading to the west, and so on, within this, this territory, almost nobody seemed to make moves which were tied to either an actual job change, moves within this region, either an actual job change or the expectation that they would have one or they would be a better place to have one. Right? In fact, most people who moved outwards actually did have a job change somewhere, but it came as a surprise to them, apparently. They discovered opportunities over the course of time when they wanted to change a job. So we have almost no movement going on inside this core of the southeast. Fringe is a bit different, um, which is associated with employment. Almost all of it is housing-driven or environmental-driven. I think it's what the studies, all the studies show, and I think it's still true. Um, Third, third observation, more recent one, is that there's some groups in the population who are consistent, have been consistently more likely to choose to live in London as compared to somewhere else, and in inner London uh, as compared with outer parts of London. Right? And these are single people, um, so people are not in a couple, graduates, and foreigners, or the children of foreigners. Maybe I think minorities, but it's something about uh, cosmopolitanism, right? And, and simplifying in this crude kind of way, what's striking is that the bias towards these people has not changed over the last 30-odd years. What has changed is these groups, which were quite small, have become very large, right? So one of the big things which has happened... Um, I think in regions such as this is not necessarily anything dramatic about the attractiveness of the place in the abstract or even people's values in general but a shift in the groups in the population who are represented 
including immigration, foreigners within this is one of the, the characteristics. Um, and that has predictable implications for concentration. Right? So the more there are these groups, even if the general rise in incomes is tending to produce de-densification, the rise of these groups is not working in the opposite direction. So there's some kind of a balance, even though it's mostly been in favor of de-densification. A picture, at last. Um, this is slightly more legible. So th this is just to say, I keep talking about the Greater Southeast. What I mean by the Greater Southeast is the administrative regions of London, the ex-administrative regions, now the ex-government office regions of London, the southeast and the east, uh, represented by the edge of the, the counties drawn on, on here. Uh, the dark green here is the green belts, the light green is combinations of areas of outstanding natural beauty and natural parks. So these are the major prescribed planning blocks, constraints within this region. So you get a sense of what the green frog that means. But also how much planning constraint there is of this formal kind, leave aside Nubism, in the rest of the region. Right? Uh, whereas if you look a bit beyond that, there's some more white spaces. Um, and there's something quite arbitrary about the way in which I've, I've defined this region because of these administrative regions. Perhaps we'll see in a minute, a few minutes, we should be talking about something quite significantly larger than this. And when Peter Hall invented the term Greater Southeast, he meant something different. Uh, and on the whole rather larger than this. Um, bear that in mind. Okay, last thing I'll say, um, and then we'll get down to, to numbers. Um, analysis. From, from the work that the LSE London group will be doing on migration in London, one of the, the, one of the things we say, like Susie last week, is this has become an incredibly diverse city in a way it was, simply wasn't 25 years ago. All the different nationalities are represented here is really a significant part of it. But still, there are some very simple distinctions that matter amongst the migrant population, not the hundred and something nationalities, um, but a simple two-by-two two distinction. Um, fundamentally, I think one of these distinctions is between people who come because, in general, people like them would expect a better quality of life, a better standard of living in this country than where they came from, right? On average. Um, typically, these people come from poorer countries. And what I mean by poor countries is less developed countries and Eastern Europe, right, and beyond, um, and including the A8 as it used to be in Romania, Bulgaria, so bits of Europe as well. Uh, typically, people who come to these countries uh, fit into this category, and they're likely to stay indefinitely because the gains, they, unless they're badly abused, the gains persist. Right? And the second group of migrants, including many of you, uh, come to a place in order to pursue a specific opportunity, which may be a, a current opportunity rather than one that persists. So it's a particular work, training, partnership, whatever it is, opportunity that's specific to the place and the time. Uh, people who migrate for these reasons, who are very large numbers in this city currently, mostly come from other rich countries, OECD countries, so West, Western Europe, North America, Australia, New Zealand, Japan, and so on. Um, and they're very likely to move back or onward subsequently. So they're a very different set of properties about because of it being the specific opportunities that they come for, which they, they may find as well elsewhere. 
So that's, that's one bit of distinction. The second reason to make this distinction is that only the former group face serious barriers to accessing good jobs. So if you look at where people who've got equivalent qualifications uh, fit into the occupation distribution, uh, what you see is that in the first three years or so, there's a very heavy concentration of people who come from poor countries in the bottom segment of the labour market. Right, and progressively over 30 years or so, you can watch them moving up the occupational spectrum and 30 years down the line, it's more or less cancelled out. But it's something like that. So it's a very big disadvantage, but it's an initial disadvantage. Um, but this disadvantage is, is the important one in relation to housing. So uh, it clearly affects purchasing power in, in the housing market or where they're positioned within uh, but in the Harvard housing market, again, evidence that Christine Weiser and Alan Holman's put together, looking at headship rates uh, in the census, I guess, or labor force survey census. Um, series of censuses showed that there was a significant gap. Headship rates, the chances of a member of a household being the head of it, which is clearly related to the size of the household. Right? Um, but the gap in headship rates, so migrants especially those in poor countries, are much less likely to be heads of households when it started, but the gaps close over 20 years. Right? So we're talking about something that evolves over time. So the second dimension that's important is how recently people arrived. Uh, and all the rest of the time I'm going to be working, small rest of the time, uh, going to be working with this two-by-two two distinction, poor country origins, rich country origins, People who came between the last census, the 2001 census and the 2011 census, people who came earlier than that, well, and there's UK-born people as well. So five groups in the population only. Okay. Right, so the, so the first part of this is looking, going back and looking at changes over time between the, the beginning of the 1980s and now, so 30-year period or so, at fluctuations in these two sorts of migration as they affect the net balances into and out of London, internationally and domestically. And the same for the rest of the greater savings, the outer part of that region. Um, it's a pity about the scale, but it's the only scale at which you can get continuous data easily. Um, so that's my excuse for it. We may have to change this. Um, and to do this in relation to factors which condition the demand for additional space, and the idea is that there are things which fluctuate macroeconomically and make a difference there, so we can look for this actually, and my approximation to this is changes in the rate of private housing completions across the country as a whole. Right? So one of the influences which is supposed to be about well, how strong is the demand for additional space likely to be in a particular year, in any place, it, it comes out of this national uh, secondly, uh, uh, some indicators which talk about the relative attractiveness, so a conventional idea, uh, of one location versus another in terms of labour market, well, let's look at the unemployment rate, housing market, let's look at a, a mixed adjusted house price, uh, and the differences between Greater London and the rest of the South East, and between the Greater South East as a whole and the UK, and each of those things as driving variables. And then net international migration, as a potential displacer of, of, of people as well as that. Right, so that's the, that's the story. And what we find, 
You might see the regression in a minute, or you might not want to. Um, but what, what we find in this, this simple analysis uh, is that the size of the London outflow does vary very strongly with national housing demand, my indicator of national housing demand. And so on the other side, does the net inflow into the rest of the greater southeast? We're talking about decentralization, people chasing more space here. So they fluctuate in opposite directions. Um, it's consistent with the idea that income elastic demands for space are a driving factor behind these flows. Um, actually, what we'll see in, in a moment is that half of the positive effects, the negative effect is in London, it's a positive effect in the rest of the Greater Southeast, but to balance the size of the negative one from London, we clearly have to look beyond the Greater Southeast. Half of the effect seems to be occurring outside the Greater Southeast. Um, relativities, differences in attractiveness of places in the housing market and the labour market that matter for London migration, same is true with the Greater Southeast, the rest of the Greater Southeast, and not those between the parts of the Greater Southeast, right, which are not significant. Right? It's the ones between the Greater Southeast as a whole and the UK which drive influence flows into London and in the same way into the rest of the Greater Southeast. Right? So if you want to look at attractors of this kind, they're operating at a scale which is much bigger than these two fractions of the region. It's the Greater Southeast which is critical to that in these terms. Um, thirdly, coming to the thing we're really supposed to be interested in, but it fits with that. Uh, international migration London, international migration gains into London appear to be 40% displaced into other areas. What I mean is that there's a for each thousand international migrants coming into London, specifically London, uh, when we control for these other influences, it looks as though there's an increase of 400 in the domestic migrants or the net domestic migrants out of the city. So 40% of the initial effect of the migration is being displaced in terms of the number of bodies that remain. They're different bodies. Uh, but exactly. uh, it's primarily, almost entirely, to areas beyond the greater southeast. Right? Uh, and we'll see this from the numbers in a minute. So there's a chain of displacements, according to my story about this, going on. But this chain of displacements goes right off the edge of the greater southeast map and the places which are affected by it at the end of the chain, and not because of people leave, going right from beginning to end, but at the end of the chain, are outside the Greater Southeast. Maybe in other bits of East Midlands, uh, in the Southwest, so in Dorset and Northamptonshire and bits of Wales as well, or maybe even further afield from that. Um, If we turn this thing around and ask about the, greatest, the rest of the Greater Southeast, there is absolutely no evidence of displacement occurring at all. Right? In fact, the coefficient has the wrong sign on it. So there's no sense in which more international migrants into the rest of the Greater Southeast affect negatively the balance of movement into that part of the region. Right? So it's consistent with the idea that what's driving it for London is having a tight housing market or constrained land supply. It works in, in the London case, it doesn't work in the rest of the great southeast case. Okay, so that's 40% gone. Uh, question is, what happens to the other 60%? How do we accommodate the other 60%? Uh, with my notional split to begin with, um, you might think about that in terms of, well, some of them may be accommodated through an increase in the supply of housing, 
and I'm going to quantify that in terms of rooms rather than, than dwellings. And some of them by being packed in more intently into the rooms that, that exist. Okay? Um, and I want to look at that. These are the regressions, but we haven't got time for that, fortunately. Um, they will all be available for critical examination. Um, right, so, so the, the second bit of empirical analysis then looks at changes between these last two censuses, mostly at lower super output area level, which is a crazy name, but it's a, a unit fairly standardized in size, somewhere between 1,000 and 2,000 people. So we're talking about really quite small units, maybe in the neighborhoods uh, across this region, 13,000 or so of them. So there's a lot of data in order to extract patterns from. Um, and looking at spatial variations in terms of where for these units or bigger housing market areas, so that doesn't actually work, uh, more rooms are being added to the stock, and which neighborhoods most there's been most densification. What it is about these places and the population movements, population changes they've been experiencing, which could explain the differences. Right? <coughs> in terms of particular of these four groups of migrants and how they compare with the UK border. You with me? Ish? Right. Something descriptive first. So just looking at patterns of population change and migration between these two censuses at that point of segregation is really quite interesting in itself and it provides a a context for understanding the process. <coughs> um, okay. So if we, if we distinguish amongst the new arrivals, the people who came in the decade between the two censuses, and the nice thing about the 2011 census is that for the first time it asks when people actually arrived. Uh, the people who arrived in this period, if you look at the ones who came from rich countries, as I've defined them, then the simple generalization of the pattern is that they're going to places in which people like them were already concentrated, and to areas, and or to areas of high job accessibility. That means in London particularly, but that pattern's not just about that. Um, and if you look at the changes in location, as we infer it, for the people who were already there in 2001, uh, the pattern is that they're drifting away from the areas of previous concentration. That's the only simple thing you can say about this. They're not actually drifting very far, and many of them are just drifting into outer London from inner London around this. But the pattern is just that they're moving away somewhat from the area of previous concentration. If you do the same thing for poor countries, then you find poor country arrivals also are concentrated in the places where people like them were concentrated before, but additional to that, they're concentrated in areas with low rates. Right? So one is, is more geared to where there's high accessibility, the other more geared to where there's cheap accommodation. Uh, and then if you look at what's happening to the people who were there already in 2001, you find something slightly different that they're shift, actually shifting towards areas with more of a native population, with more of a UK-born population. 
So it's not that they're just moving away from the areas they first settled in, but they're moving actually into to mainstream areas as, as far as they can. Uh, over including the outer outer London, they have a wider territory, including right beyond the Greater Southeast again. So this is a, a stream of previous poor country migrants um, we can see going beyond the Greater Southeast in this period, or we can infer. Right. Um, three steps in talking about accommodation growth. So, descriptively, if we look at growth rates in the major rings of this region, so inner London, outer London, the outer metropolitan area, beyond that, the outer greater southeast, four, four rings. Uh, simple statistics, which again, you're in the slides, but you're not going to see them. Uh, show strong population growth in each of these rings during, during this period, but much faster inside London and especially in inner London. And the inner London population grew by uh, adding up figures from these small areas rather than consulting the published volume, about 15% over the decade, right? Which is quite astonishing for a, a part of the city which had been losing population more massively uh, than elsewhere through most of my professional career. And, as well, and the problem was would there be anybody left in it? Now, growing by 15% of its time. Okay, there's a substantial growth in the number of rooms occurring too uh, over this period, especially in inner London and also in the outer Greater Southeast. So, the innermost and the outermost areas both show the strongest growth in the amount of accommodation that becomes available in room terms over this period, um, and it grows by about 9 or 10%. In, the, in these two areas, and it's down near a five in some of the ones in between. So it's non-trivial, um, but it's clearly not as strong in inner London as the growth in the population. Um, London's higher population growth was entirely amongst the foreign-born. So UK-born numbers in London fell, and they especially fell in outer London, um, something which I've not really been conscious of before, but it's this really steep decline in outer London in the UK woman numbers during this decade. Uh, the biggest contributing factors growth though for the new arrivals in four countries. Um, yeah, those were not set by a net reduction in the arrival of previous arrivals. Right? So we have new influx of people from four countries coming into London, coming into the Greater Southeast in this period, but it's offset to some extent uh, by previous waves moving further out and moving right beyond the greater southeast as a whole. Okay, so those are some, some facts and there's tables, a couple of tables which document that. The question is, how are they linked causally? Can we find evidence to connect these, these two by, by doing progressions as always uh, across this set of neighbourhood areas uh, in order to try and find an informed way what the patterns and causal connections might be. So, and we do this in two stages. The first one tries to find evidence that an inflow of migrants from new, from rich countries or from poor countries during this decade has an impact on the rates of growth in not dwellings but rooms uh, during this period. When you control for a number of other factors, and the ones that I'm controlling for are almost all related to land supply, like green belt and. Uh, 
brownfield potential and the amount of, of non-urbanised land and things like that, which are really, really very important. So it's after we've controlled for those things that we're looking to see whether there's evidence that migration rates made a difference. I have to say, when you take big areas, uh, the local housing market areas, you can't find it, right? It looks like they're zero effects, but the standard errors are so big that they might be something else as well. Um, so the evidence is there, but we're, we're a banner, and that's partly because we just have a small number of these. There's only, these are Mike Coombs' definition of local housing market areas uh, across the region. There's 73 of them, and that's a relatively small number. It's certainly not as powerful as having 13,000 observations to play with. Um, so let's, let's go down to this, this small unit, uh, this small level, uh, and what we find is significant effects from both immigration of net migration of people from poor countries during the decade and people from rich countries, but not big ones, right? So the, the coefficient suggests that a 10% population growth via rich country migration, right? So rich country migration adding 10% to the local population might add 2% to the room stock, might have added 2% to the room stock over this period, over and above what was, was happen otherwise. Um, if you look at poor country migrants, the effect's about a third of that. So a ten, an addition of 10% of the population adding something less than 1%, 0.7%, quite precisely, you know, these are very significant, well, these are significant uh, findings, they're non-trivial. Non but they're not big effects. So some of it looks as though it's being picked up by induced increases in, in dwelling supply, but really not very much. So the last stage, um, then do the same kind of exercise, um, differently set up, to try and understand changes in room density. Right? So for each of these neighbourhood areas, we've calculated the change in persons per room, the proportionate change in persons per room over the 10-year period. Uh, and looked at, I, mean, I say this is an accounting model. I mean, it's not really causal. I'm mostly looking at the effects of population mix and I'm trying to find evidence associated with characteristic uh, densities of occupation in the groups that are being added to the population or taken away from the population. That's the, that's the basic logic of it. So it's not a sophisticated kind of causal model. It's trying to, to look at mixture in this, this way. Um, in terms of our five population subgroups, the four sets of migrants and the UK ones. Um, so it's being related to that and the only other controls we have is job accessibility, um, which is about centrality, but is you know, sophisticated pattern across the region, uh, and what the persons per room rate was at the beginning. Because you might expect that if it was exceptionally high, there would be some tendency to convergence. Yeah. Um, so these are the only controls we've got. What, and what we find numbers, is when you, when you go this exercise, uh, this the best single predictor, the strongest single predictor in the whole thing, is the scale of new arrivals from poor countries, right? Which is really very significant, is the most powerful influence we, we can find, explaining changes in, so it's nice, consistent with prejudices to start with, about packing poor people into these places. Um, and it looks as though, in the margin, 55 of the extra 100, of the extra 100 migrants, uh, population added through migration to this group were being accommodated through denser occupation of existing rooms. 
right? So recall we had uh, less than one, something like that, being occupied through uh, extra rooms. We've got 55 through packing them into the rooms. Um, if you look at the UK, changes in the UK board, it's just 10. Right? So it's not the case that all growth involves packing more people in. Growth in the UK-born population is associated with just 10 being packed in out of the 100 extra that you have. Okay. Um, and for those who've been in the country over, over 10 years, wherever they come from, it's around 30. Right. Uh, the group I've missed talking about is people who come from rich countries where the effect is much weaker than it is for poor countries on average, but it turns out to be very different depending on where we're looking. Right? So maybe we haven't made enough distinctions in this, but people from rich countries who come to inner London seem to pr produce very little impact, if any at all, which is significant, uh, on room densities. Uh, people who are coming to the rest of the greater southeast have quite a big one. Right, so it's consistent with the idea that there's a particularly affluent, maybe, uh, mix of people from rich countries who actually settle within uh, London as compared with, and maybe not just Kensington, um, but as compared with other parts of the region. So a migrant from a rich country is not all the same in this, in this respect, but all the effects are substantially small. Um, Right, and in the rest of the greater southeast, these people are adding about 45. Sorry, about 45 of an extra 100 people is being accommodated in existing rooms, greater density. That's a strong densification going on amongst migrants, except for the rich ones coming into inner London relative to the rest of the population. But if you look then at what happens in subsequent periods, looking at the people already there in 2001, it's evident that the, that the tendency towards denser occupation is not nearly as strong among them, right? So it's down to about 30, irrespective of where they come from. So it's roughly halving as far as the people from poor countries are concerned. So there's something which is consistent for the poor country people, which is the notion that there's convergence. And that the, and that the impact upon the housing market of migrants changes over time. How long can so packing in may be something which is absolutely characteristic of early years spent in London's way of accommodating, but not something that persists, or which as demographers and planners we can assume will persist. Uh, I think maybe we do. The other thing I should say is that, uh, though I keep saying it's all down to this poor country migration, if you look at the effects of job accessibility, that's also clearly driving up densities. Uh, so the areas within the Greater Southeast which have high job accessibility, independent of these other factors, density of room occupation is going up over the decade quite significantly. Um, so that there is something else going, going on. There is some other source of the demand for accessibility, not just migrants. Maybe graduates or whatever as well. Okay, right. I've talked too long. Um, so some, some simple crude conclusions of something which is clearly not finished. This is work in progress and the questions still to be addressed and you can give me some more of them, hopefully. Um, this idea of accommodating migrants involves some combination of these three arithmetical factors, induced additions to the housing stock, denser occupation of the rooms and displacement elsewhere. For migrants to London, with its constrained space, 
Um, the last of these seems to account for about 40%, right? The displacement factor, going somewhere else, creating a problem for, for another locality rather than the constrained ones. For poor country migrants, the first of these, um, the induced additions to local room stock accounts for about 10%. The denser occupation accounts for about 55%. If you believe these numbers, that would leave 35% for displacement for that group, right? Putting together estimates from different places and just trying to do something with them, because I don't have a direct estimate for the moment of how displacement effects vary between the rich countries and the poor countries. Because right? we don't know enough about, we don't have a decent enough migration series, but we're, we're testing out. Um, for rich country migrants, uh, the first of these, the generation of additional rooms, accounts for about 20% of the necessary um, bodies. Um, the second of these accounts for about 12%. That leaves about two-thirds for displacement. Right? So the, the commonsensical idea uh, that we don't have evidence for it is that displacement out of London is particularly a phenomenon likely to be associated with migrants from rich countries because they're not being packed in as densely, uh, rather than migrants from poor countries. Yeah. So densification and displacement may be phenomena which are differentially associated with rich country migrants and poor country migrants. Um, so it's a reason for trying to understand this. But densification affects the poor country migrants, so this again, clearly reduce over time. So they imply that the likelihood of substantially more displacement occurring as time goes on. Right? So that net out migration for London ought to be increasing as a consequence of this, and that the gains from migrants of this period can't be assumed to permanently raise the population of London in, in the face of that. I always want a reasonable pessimism about London growth. Um, but the other thing I want to say is displacement effects of London immigration clearly spread well beyond the Greater Southeast. The Greater Southeast is just not greater enough at the moment for, for several of the effects that, that are emerging within this. Um, and going even further away, or in, going outside in greater numbers even, than the spillover from income growth suggests. So it's very largely beyond the Greater Southeast. We seem to be seeing the end of that chain. Um, Within London, poor country migration is a major factor in densification, but so is growing demand for accessibility from other sources. make any sense to be thinking about housing policies for London 
uh, without looking at what happens across the board. You know, and this is one of the examples of where things are happening in terms of the flows of demand between one side of the world and the other, which are not easy to put across, actually. And they require serious analysis to underpin London planning and to underpin actually some adequate provision of housing somewhere within this extended region. We might have to look even further at these. So I, so I think that's the main simple thing, obviously. It's not a policy implication that starts off with, but I don't see how you can have sensible policies for housing in this region at all, unless you're looking well beyond it. And this just adds to that complexity, because of, nobody thinks about displacement effects. There is a, you know, there is a simple-minded story always about growth in London, population and employment as being Man, I have to say, it's about punching above our weight, right? And it's a mark of success and competitive capacity and all these great things. There clearly ain't nothing as simple as that. And one of the things it's about, you know, in this case, is just packing migrants in more densely. Right? It's unlocked lots of other dirty things that we have You ought to be um, precious for this. Preservation. Good afternoon. Thank you. Uh, Duncan University of Westminster. I mean, I think this study is interesting, but needs to be set within the context of movers more generally. You're focusing on different origins of international migration, but there are a whole range of other factors in terms of broader sort of impact on on why people are actually moving. And just to mention sort of three, um, there is clearly in terms of the analysis, the methodology of, of levels of occupation a need to, to look at actually the changing trends of under and over occupation in different locations, both existing stock and new development. Um, but also, I'm not sure how you actually treat the issue of vacancies, whether you actually count the properties but not the people, or whether they're excluded altogether. These, these, are, these are occupied Just rooms. looking at occupied properties, that, that answers part of it. The, the, the second issue, which you touched Sorry, on, is... There are rooms in occupied dwellings. Rooms in occupied dwellings, yes. okay, thanks. Um, the, the second element is you touched on travel to work, but, I mean, travel to work is about distance, it's about cost as well, and the accessibility to different types of jobs to people in different parts of the labour market. In clearly the issue at the moment about people being displaced from central London on low incomes in low paid jobs and the travel costs that they then have to pay to get back into London. So the issue of are people being displaced who are actually changing their jobs or losing their jobs or are people being displaced who are then commuting longer distances to get back to their jobs. So the kind of travel to work analysis I think is much more fundamental. The third point which is in a sense taking this into the broader debate about mobility and the how market is the issues about affordability of provision, tenure of provision, the issue of people moving out of choice and people being forced to move because they can't afford to live where they are. The issues of built for, you, you picked on as environmental factors, but people moving for better quality homes uh, in the suburbs or beyond. Um, in terms of looking for houses rather than flats. And then this issue fundamentally which is forcing so much mobility is the absence of units of different sizes in terms of the absence of family housing and people actually moving for those reasons. Now the migration issue is an element within that but I don't think you can really study what's happening to international migrants depending on their countries of origin without actually looking at the much broader issues of mobility, travel to work uh, and changes in affordability both 
across the area, but also affordability within specific locations. I know that broadens it out beyond what you're trying to study, but I think the contextualising well, is really critical. It doesn't do it in a way, because I think it's an issue about who's broader than who. Yeah, OK. Plays this match. I, I, I think the problem that you have with what I'm doing is that it's too broad, right? And, I, and I'm deliberately operating in a very aggregate way. Uh, and unusually, so I've worked with total numbers of rooms and not, not working on population. No. And I think there is a logic to, to, to doing this, and that underpinning a whole series of very specific kinds of problems and issues, in which condition my stock and my legislation and things like that. There are some rather simple kinds of orders which you can only uncover if you actually stand back and say, okay, crucially underneath this, there is a relationship between the number of people and the number of rooms that are available. Okay, they're never going to be optimally allocated. Alan underoccupies his house, I significantly underoccupy my house, you know, and so on. Um, but I I'm trying to figure a way to make an argument for starting at the other end for some purposes, working in a deliberately aggregate way and only making those distinctions which you can show to have clear implications and comprehensible ones. Yeah? And that, and because I think there's a real problem of, about analyses, both on the econometric side and on the, on the, the detailed housing side, which actually are too complicated, actually, for anybody to understand the story. I strongly support this kind of work. It seems terribly useful and interesting. And one of the things it makes me wonder is this. Um, to some extent, and I suppose I'm asking what extent, to some extent, your distinction between rich countries and poor countries is a kind of proxy for the rich and poor individuals. Or, if you like, the people coming from poor countries people come from rich countries are probably just rich. Now we can think of exceptions in both ends. And it would be very interesting indeed to see how this kind of findings pair with work on could do it at a more individual level. I might find that some of these poor people who are making the poor country migration behaviours different from rich countries are rather like the behaviours of poor Brits. Or Scots or Irish. So, if I was sponsored first of I don't. One of the reasons for for being attached to the distinction between the countries that we come from is that this is a permanent characteristic. Um, whereas poverty or position in the labour market is not. And so, one of the interesting things about the come from poor countries, or well, two interesting things, right? one is that on average in London there is well qualified as anybody else in the city. More qualified people come from rich countries. They just get up and they start off in this position. And secondly, they do really change you know, to a quite surprising degree. So I'm, I'm loath to stand back and say, let's translate this into rich and poor individuals. There's something structural here. Uh, and it's something which we can, can sustain over the long run. They still come from the same country even 10 years down the line when they become in a position made different. And that's part of the driving force. But your bias, son. 
So, so the census, one of the many limitations is the census data I've been working with is only the aggregate data, right? So it's not going to um, sample the anonymized records, which I don't think is available yet, probably to the study, which is only just available. Um, so I don't know anything about that. Uh, I think, you know, I'm, I'm sure, I'm expected to be right about what's, what's happened to the distribution of the especially within the large but of course there's a problem uh, in moving between, between square metres and any other measure we want to do and this is meant to be a, a, the, the nearest proxy I can get for, for square metres but I, would, I guess I would be really surprised if on the whole um, trends in, in persons per room in London were not uh, more upward than the average for the UK. Um, 
you know, I, I, I imagine that the outer parts of the greater southeast would be much more typical of uh, the, the trends that you could expect in the rest of the UK. But you know, if you're saying all that, I don't know. To be honest. Very honestly. Um, it's a good question. And you know, there is a problem about working with working with averages, but, but it's only working with averages that allows you then to do some, something like saying, well, we have this, this percentage split, um, which I think is helpful even if it's not quite the right. Um, yeah, I, I'm sort of trying to put this together in a sort of model, sorry. But I mean, the implication of what you were talking about is that instead of sort of the Alonzo cone yeah. land value gradient within the urban area, it's that the Alonzo cone extends about 100 miles yes, or so out. I mean, I always remember, I think it was 20 years ago, the last the boom then, people were commuting from Doncaster, which is about probably the, the, the your furthest point. Now, what we've therefore got is this displacement effect across you know, a, a large-scale urban area, which has got all these spaces where you're not allowed to build in. And so um, it seems to me that that's, that's, that's part of it. And that high, and what you're talking about is increasing rents and land values, and that's what's driving the densification. The people that you're observing in are really recent migrants because owner-occupiers like you and me aren't driven by the fact that our price, house prices are rising to actually move. But if you're occupying rented accommodation, then you're driven to occupy it more densely. And don't forget that post the credit crunch, actually rents increased. So rents increased substantially between 2001 and 2011. And so you would expect the densification which you're observing. Um, and you're observing it in the migrants simply because they're recent arrivals and migrants. And so, um, you know, that, that's, that, that's the... the can, can I just quibble about the house price thing? Because it seems to me that there is a drop. So I'm sitting as a quasi-retired person in Reading in, in what's expensive property because it's in Reading and there's all these jobs around which don't interest me any longer. So one of the driving forces is exactly that. There are people in areas where property prices go up for reasons we have nothing to do with their interests. Um, they suit somebody else's interests, and they do have a motive for going somewhere else. So there's always going to be a part of the area occupied population which responds to an injection of, of demand from elsewhere by saying it's not worth my while staying in longer, I can get twice the size property somewhere else further out. Yeah, I mean, it's, 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 uh, the, the, the recent migrants are more likely to, uh, I mean, one of the reasons for immigration from, say, Poland is because wages are higher in London because housing is so expensive, and if you're prepared to share, um, you know, you're actually pretty well off if you're prepared to accept rather low standards of accommodation and can share it. That's, you know, uh, that, that's, a, that's a factor which encourages immigration because, um, you know, which it won't do for Britons who want to move, who think of moving to, to London and think too bloody expensive, I'm not going to do it. But that's because you're saying they're not prepared to sleep 10 to a bed. Um, well, roughly, yeah. Yes. So, I mean, that which does, does bring us back to, to indeed, to England, you know, that there are, there are choices that people make, and some people make choices in circumstances which are much tighter than others. 
they end up you know, occupying space, unacceptable space, and space at very high densities. It is about poverty in that case. And your people moving to the rest of the UK are not as poor, are not as seriously driven by economic imperatives as the poles who happen to be mobile. Um, just wondering from Michael, and again, that was really very interesting. I'm just wondering as well if it is a story about poor and rich rather than necessarily migrant and non-migrant. If we reframe it thinking about the benefits that regular Britons can get in terms of tenure, if those things change as they seem to be changing, where people lose their security of tenure, will we see more densification in the native population as well? So, as people lose their security. Somebody who's always uh, said I know nothing about housing, and I intend to know nothing about housing, this is dangerously close to housing. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, that's the threshold. <laughs> On that note, <laughs> once again, very much for that presentation. And also, sorry if I start for a round of applause and thank you. Two bits of information. Firstly, I think we'll go over to George. So there'll be um, some over in George afterwards. And secondly, just to say that. Um, next week, Alex Fenton and Amanda Fitzgerald Arp will be um, talking to us about, very continuously, growth and spatial distribution of poverty in London between the two censuses, 2001 2011. So, thank you very much, Ian. And, for people who can read numbers critically, the slides will be available on the website, and I will be interested in the comments.